Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Well, this morning, I want to talk about our longing for security, specifically our longing to feel and to be safe. If you think about it, we spend an inordinate amount of time feeling in danger of harm. And I don't even know that we're fully aware of it all of the time, but we spend an amazing amount of time with some sense of fear that we are in danger physically, that we are in danger relationally, most often that we are in danger emotionally, sometimes even that we are in danger spiritually. And and I think what's really tricky about this particular core longing is that that fear of harm inside of us is so frequent, I think that we live the vast majority of our lives unaware of its existence inside of us. We've just become so accustomed to having some kind of underlying fear of harm that it's just like this is what's normal for us and we don't notice it or pay attention to it anymore. But if we really take the time to examine the things that we do, if we take the time to examine the way that we respond in relationship, the way that we respond to circumstances, oftentimes what we will find is this constant pursuit of self protection. And like all of the longings that we're going to look at through this series, this longing for security has been placed inside of us by God himself. The longing is not bad. It is good. It was put there by God. He wired that into us. And so when we go back to this Genesis story again, which is where we've taken this title, Garden State, the garden is this picture or symbol of immense and total security. Adam and Eve are living in the safety of the garden in Genesis chapter 2. And we know that they feel immensely safe primarily because of one thing. They are naked and unashamed. Like, you know you feel safe when you're naked, right? Like, that is just the most vulnerable, exposing situation that a person could be in. But they feel, the text is very specific in Genesis 2, that they feel they are naked, but they feel no shame whatsoever. It is meant to, to be a picture of safety, of security, They felt no need to self-protect because they lived in the personal protection of God's presence. Now, if you know the Genesis story, then you know the problem. The problem was Adam and Eve make the deliberate choice to step out from under God's protective presence. And the moment that they made that decision, they felt something they had never felt before up to that point. They feel a fear of harm, which is why their very first response to that feeling is an act of self-protection. The first thing Adam and Eve do when they feel this fear of harm is they sew fig leaves together, the story tells us, to cover their nakedness because they now felt shame. 
And that was not their only act of self-protection. They were also afraid, for the first time in their lives, that God himself would harm them. They hear the sound of God walking in the garden, and they hide in the trees because they are afraid of his presence. Where once his presence brought them peace and comfort and security, it now only carried this fear of harm. Now, Scripture goes on to be one long story of a perfect God so deeply determined to bring his people back into his protective presence. And we see this start in Genesis chapter 3. God makes the first sacrifice for sin. And he takes the skins of this animal and forms clothes for them to protect their literal physical bodies from harm. And the Old Testament then goes on to be this long story of God constantly inviting his people back to his presence because they were so prone, like we are, to run away in another direction. The New Testament then becomes the story of the lengths that God is willing to go to in order to welcome us back to his protective presence. Jesus sacrifices, as we've talked about already this morning, sacrifices his own life to cover over our sin and cover over our shame once and for all, making his perfect, protective presence accessible to everyone. But here's really the challenge that I think we have to wrestle with if we're going to think honestly about this longing inside of us for safety and security, here's a question I think that just has to be wrestled with. How do we experience security in a world that is so frequently marked by trauma? Think about your life and your experiences. Think about what you know about the world that we live in. Think about just a handful of the things that are happening in our world right now. How on earth are we supposed to experience any semblance of security in a world that is so marked by trauma? Now, definitions for trauma abound. But when I talk about it this morning, here's really what we're talking about. Trauma is the psychological, emotional response to an event or experience that is deeply distressing or disturbing. It's a pretty broad, general definition on purpose. And I won't ask you to, but I know that every single one of us, based on this definition, we have all experienced our fair share of trauma in our lives. But just for the sake of clarity, so that we really understand what we're talking about, because there's such a wide variety of traumatic experience that we all have, I brought a few just so that we would be on the same page and understand. So see if you can't find some of your own experience somewhere in here. Examples of trauma would include abuse of any kind. So that would be physical, emotional, verbal, sexual, any kind of abuse is is trauma. Childhood neglect which doesn't just mean like your parents locked you in a closet and left you. You could have two present parents that emotionally neglect you in a way that marks your life for the rest of your life. Additionally, living with a family member suffering from uh, mental health or substance disorder. Keep going. Sudden unexplained separation from a loved one. So someone was in your life, then they're not in your life, and there's no explanation as to why that actually happened. Next would be poverty, growing up without the things that you actually need. 
Next would be racism, oppression, or discrimination of any kind. All of that is traumatic. Violence in the community. Every time there is a shooting or a murder in our community or in our world, we're aware so much more than ever before of so much that happens in this world. There's a sense in which every single time this happens, it traumatizes everyone. In so many ways, the world was traumatized by the murder of George Floyd because we all watched it happen. That's a trauma. Next would be war and terrorism. And then finally would be pandemics that kill millions of people and shut down our life for like two years. I don't know that we recognize it, but we have all just lived through traumatic experience through 2020 and 2021. And we're still very much living in the wake of it. And so the question then becomes, how do we experience security in a world marked by all of this trauma? Now, trauma can and does occur in every stage of our lives, for sure. But its effects are most debilitating in the long-term sense when we experience trauma as children with developing brains. Adverse childhood experience, or ACEs, is any kind of trauma that is experienced by someone under the age of usually about 17, is what they consider it. Now listen to these numbers. 61% of Americans that were surveyed, it was a large, large survey, 61% of Americans say that they experienced at least one ACE in their life. And one out of six report experiencing at least four or more. By my count, I experienced six before the age of 15. And I don't say that for any amount of sympathy, but to say I understand personally the long-term debilitating effects of experiencing trauma in childhood. And so regardless of when, it can have major consequences in our life. Many of us, the emotional consequences that we are living with, the relational consequences, the difficulty that we have connecting and attaching and relating, all of that is tied back to and rooted in the experiences that we have had. So I would ask you again, how do we experience security in a world, in lives that have been so marked and touched by so much trauma? So let's just bring this all together so that we understand the context that we are trying to invite God's word to speak to us in this morning. So just to summarize, God created us with this longing for security, but sin disrupted our experience of that. And so the bad news is we long for it, but we live in a world that is filled with the opposite of it. And the good news is God invites us to experience his presence in a way that truly satiates this longing and he invites us to be an extension of his safe and secure presence in our lives, in the lives of one another. We get to play a part in being an extension of God's safe presence to everyone around us. And so the question is, how do we accept that invitation? Jesus says, come to me. You are safe with me. You are secure in me. How do we actually answer that invitation? And I just want to be honest with you at the outset. It is very hard. It is very hard. And it is a lifelong process. And it is possible. Psalm 46.1 says this, God is our refuge. 
and our strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. So how do we go about actually experiencing this in any sort of real and practical way? And to answer that question, I want to turn our attention to Proverbs chapter 18. So if you have a Bible or an app that you're going to be reading on, why don't you open and turn to Proverbs 18. We're going to look at three verses, 10, 11, and 12. And while you're turning there, here's what I want you to know about if you're not familiar. I think we all have some sense of what a proverb is. But this book of Proverbs that God has put in his word is really about one overarching subject. It's about the subject of wisdom. Now, sometimes we don't think clearly, ironically, about the subject of wisdom. Wisdom is not intelligence. Wisdom is not about being smart. Wisdom is not about your specific uh, degree that you have experienced educationally in your life. Wisdom is this. Wisdom is to be skilled at living God's way. Anytime the Bible talks about wisdom, and as we read through the Proverbs that are all about helping us live in a wise manner, that's what it's talking about. It's helping us learn how to live God's way with skill and precision. God created us. God created this world. There is a manner in which God has created us and this world to function. The wise know how to live skillfully within the context for which God created us. And as we come to Proverbs 18, the wisdom that is imparted to us is all about this subject of security, how God would have us pursue the satisfying experience of being secure and safe in him. And in these three verses, we learn three things. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. Number one, if we're going to experience the protective presence of God, in a world so marked by trauma, first thing, practice running to the protective presence of God. We are invited to practice running to the protective presence of God. Look with me at Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. So a couple of things of note in this verse. The first is, notice how what we're invited to run to is the name of the Lord, which is weird on first reading, right? How do you run to a person's name? But think about, think about the significance of a name. When you hear, let's say you hear my name, you are immediately filled with probably thoughts, emotions, and feelings based on what you know about me, based on the experiences that you've had with me, things that you've heard me say, things that you've seen me do, how you have felt in my presence. All of that is bound up by just hearing a name. And in the very same way, when we read this invitation to run to the name of the Lord, it is speaking specifically about his person. It's about his character. It's about his attributes. It's God himself that we are being invited to run to because the text tells us he is a strong tower. Now, Solomon was a master who is the one who penned or edited the vast majority of the book of Proverbs or people took his wise sayings and put them into this book years after his death. But Solomon was a master at taking kind of his, his own culture and context 
and finding God in the midst of it and teaching wisdom from it. And so it was very common in towns and cities that they would have these high, strong towers in the center of them. They used them for storage, but they were also the place that if a city or a town was attacked, everyone would run to because they were so strong and so tall that they were essentially impenetrable. And so people could run in and up to the top and they were safe from harm. And that is what we are told or we are invited not not to just like mosey toward. Text is pretty specific. It says run. And this invitation To run means to act quickly, decisively, with all diligence. When we feel any sense of harm, the invitation of God is always, run to me and find security for your soul. Now here's why I think this notion of God's name is so important for us to really understand and to think about. Um, You won't run to a God you don't know. Agreed? Like if if you're not sure who God is and what God's like, if you're not sure specifically that God is safe, then when you feel any sense of harm, you're not gonna run to him. And to be honest, the reason that most of us are so self-protective most of the time is we're not 100% sure God's safe. We're not 100% sure he's good. We're not 100% sure he's for us. We're not 100% sure he loves us. We're not 100% sure he likes us. And as a result, we feel like, well, I better protect myself. Which means the chief pursuit of the Christian life is to know God. It's the most important thing in your life. And everything else in our lives relationships, marriage, parenting, vocation, hobby, leisure, all of it has to come in the wake of knowing God. And when it comes to knowing God, there are two essential ways, two two components of it. And it's important that we think clearly and that we discern are both of these experiences of knowing God present in my life. So here they are. The first one is we have to know God informationally. We have to know God informationally. And by that, I just mean we have to actually know what scripture says about who he is. We have to know informationally that the Bible says he is good, that he is loving, that he doesn't leave us, that he doesn't forsake us, that he is for us, that he does enjoy us, that he does take pleasure in us. Scripture says all of that. And so... We live in this day and this age where we have the tremendous privilege of literally thousands of books, blog articles, sermons, seminars, all helping us gather information about who God is and what he's like. And I'm here to tell you, 30, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning is not enough. I'm happy to be one part of helping you know God informationally, but I'm like the necessary 1% at best. Your life needs to be committed to really informationally understanding who God is and what he's like. But information alone is not enough. We also have to know God experientially. We have to know God experientially, meaning 
We have to actually sit and relate with him. We have to relate with him. We have to talk to him. We have to hear from him. We need to feel his presence. We need to experience him in our lives. We need both of these things. And the truth is, if we only seek to know God one of these two ways, we will live in an imbalanced relationship with him. There are some people that only want to know God in an experiential sense. Their Bible's closed, covered in dust. They don't know any information biblically about God, but they want to experience him. That's how cults start, if you've ever wondered. It's when a person becomes untethered from the word of God, and they get visited by God knows what, and they decide, well, this is who God is. So experience alone is not enough. But we've probably all also met people that only know God informationally. They usually know a lot about God and look nothing like him. They are harsh. They are cold. They have very clear categories and lines for who is in and who is out. And they just always happen to fit their sort of natural makeup and wiring. They tend to focus all of their attention on their strengths and downplay or de-emphasize their weaknesses, their own faults, their own sins like pride. We have to know God in both ways. We need to know him informationally and we need to know him experientially. And on the experiential end, that was the entire reason why we just did the Here I Am series was so that we would know how to sit with God, to implement practices into our daily lives that help us know God in a very real, very tangible, very experiential way. So we talked about sitting in stillness with God. We talked about savoring scripture in a way that allows us to actually hear his voice. We talked about how we search for him in our daily lives, recognizing what he is inviting us to. And so if you missed any part of that, please go back and listen to that. Because it is essential that we know God in these two ways. So if we want to have our longing for security met in the deepest way, we have to practice running to the protective presence of God. But that's not all that Solomon tells us. The second thing is this. We have to practice recognizing our own false hopes for security. Practice recognizing your own false hopes for security. Look at verse 11. He says, the wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. Now, I want you to notice there's a contrast here in verse 10 and 11. And the contrast is between two very different sources for security. In verse 10, we see that the righteous run to God as a strong tower. And the rich, Solomon said, as a very, very wealthy man himself, the rich rely on wealth to serve as their fortified city. And so I want you to notice that that first one puts a person in a position where they are being protected by God, and the second is a picture of self-protection. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you consider yourself rich, the vast majority of us would not put our hands up. And the reason for that is that we have a tendency, I think especially here in the U.S., when it comes to comparing ourselves wealth-wise, we always compare up and we don't look down. So we go, well, Elon Musk just 
freaking bought Twitter for like 45 billion. Like he was just like, here you go. This is mine now. We go, I'm not rich. That's rich. But the truth is every one of us in this room is far more wealthy than the, than the average person in this world. And it's important that we know that. But even more important than that, it's essential that we understand that Solomon is using this as an example. In no way is money the only false hope that we live with for protection and for safety and for security. Our lives are filled with self-protective measures. And here's the key we have to see in this verse that is most important. Solomon is telling us that any Attempt at self-protection is a delusion. It's a delusion. You see that? He says that the wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. That's a pretty cutting, pointed, two clicks from condescending comment for Solomon to make. He's like, yeah, the rich look at their wealth they think they're safe. They think they're secure. They think they're untouchable. This is their fortified city. And all of that exists only as true in their imagination. It's a delusion. Because the truth is, I, don't, I mean, and I don't wish this in any way, but I don't care how rich Elon Musk is, all it takes is cancer to strike his body, and that money does no good. Yes, it might by treatment, but even wealthy people can have that security taken from them. So putting hope, putting faith in anything other than Jesus to be our security is a delusion at best. It's not real. It's certainly not permanent, and it is not truly secure. But the reality is we are all prone to do this. And so I want to give you a question to think about and to wrestle with and reflect on over the course of hopefully this week, but really for the rest of your life, because it's a good daily question. The question is this, what or whom do I run to in order to feel safe? What or whom do I run to in order to feel safe? You want to know what mine is? I'm not going to make you confess yours, but I'll confess mine, okay? Then you don't get to hide because I'm doing it in front of everybody. You can at least do it to God. I would say that probably the, the, the most frequent pursuit of self-protection in my own life is this feeling I have, a responsibility that I sense to make everyone around me feel okay. I just want everyone to feel okay all of the time. And the reason for that is I experienced a lot of people who were not okay in my life growing up. And it created an environment for me that was very unpredictable and felt to me as though it was very unsafe. And so now, anytime, even now as like an almost 42-year-old grown man, every time I walk into an environment where someone seems not okay to me, it, emotionally, it triggers all that same stuff in me. And I feel like this seven-year-old version of myself that is in a situation that is outside of his control and therefore not safe. And so that means that I walk into every room reading looks, reading comments, reading body language, trying to assess, I'm not even conscious of it most of the time, trying to assess, are, are we okay? Are you okay? Because if you're not okay, I'm not okay. 
And there's a myriad of problems with this as a way of living. The first is, it's not my responsibility to make sure everyone's okay. That's a big one. A second one would be, sometimes people aren't okay, and that's okay. We don't have to be okay all the time. I mean, we've been talking about all the stuff that goes on in our lives, all the stuff that goes on in our world. If you're okay all of the time, you too are delusional. Thirdly, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to feel the weight of trying to be God in everyone's life. Try it. You'll sleep deeply because it's exhausting to walk in and go, okay, I got I to make sure everything and everyone is okay all the time. That's not my job. That's God's job. And, and most importantly, it robs me of the opportunity to run to God's protective presence. Because when we self-protect, here's what we're saying. We're kind of tapping God out going, you take a break because you've been working real hard, but you take a break. I got this one. And you forfeit the experience of being under his protective presence while you try to be God. And that's something that after all of these years, I'm still trying to get my head around and understand. So that's how I most frequently am prone to practice self-protection. But I want you to think about you. What or whom do you run to in order to feel secure? Maybe it's people-pleasing. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's finances, like Solomon has talked about. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's isolation, where you go, people are not safe for me, and so it's just going to be me and Jesus, maybe, and nobody else. All of those are acts of self-protection. And if we are going to have our longing for security met in the deepest way possible, we have to practice recognizing our own false hopes for security. It's a delusion. And then finally is this. We have to practice repenting of the pride that promotes self-protection. Practice repenting of the pride that promotes self-protection. Look at verse 12. Solomon writes, before his downfall, so he's referencing back to verse 11. This rich person whose hope is in their wealth, in their imagination, believing that's their high wall, a downfall's coming. And notice this, before his downfall, a person's heart is proud. But humility comes before honor. So notice this connection between pride and delusion. Pride empowers us to believe that anything and anyone other than Jesus, including ourselves, can make us feel truly secure. And I want you to notice that before there is any self-protective act, any self-protective behavior, there is pride in the heart. That's where it comes from. And pride will destroy you. Martin Luther, the reformer, called pride the mother of all sin. It's where all sin comes from. And before there is any self-protective act or behavior, there is pride in the heart, which means we need this daily practice in our lives of, of, of recognizing and repenting of that pride. Because our inclination, as we've been talking about, is toward self-protection. Beneath so much of what we do is that inclination. 
So you know what we're like? We're like Dory from Finding Nemo. You guys all remember Dory? If you haven't seen that movie, that's your homework. Go watch it. Dory has no short-term memory, and so she is constantly introducing herself to Nemo for two hours in this movie. Every two minutes, even though they've been hanging out, trying to save the world together, she keeps forgetting who she is and introducing herself. She has no short-term memory. And I think that the vast majority of us are exactly like that. We forget over and over and over where our security comes from. And we listen to the lie of pride that says, you are all you need. And what tends to happen is even if we have one of those, what I would refer to as like a sacred moment, where you do experience the protective presence of God in an experiential way, and you feel in a moment, God, I am whole, and I am safe, and I am secure in you. And for some reason, that lasts about a minute and a half. And then we immediately step out of that, and we go right back into self-protection mode. That's how quick we forget. It lasts for maybe a moment, and then we believe that lie again that says your security comes from you, and that is pride, which means we have to repent. Now, that means acknowledging the pride. It means owning and taking responsibility for it, and it means changing. Repentance is, a, is, is not just confession. There's much confusion in Christian thinking about repentance, and we tend to equate it with confession. Confession is a part of repentance, but it is not the whole. Full, true, biblical repentance is a change of three things. It's a change of heart, mind, and behavior. I feel differently about my sin. I think differently about my sin. And I'm going to behave differently in regards to my sin. It's a change of all three of those things. And so we identify this pride and allow God to soften our hearts in a way that causes us to grieve the fact that we would choose us over God. We recognize intellectually, God says that's a losing strategy in your life. And as a result, we make deliberate decisions over and over and over when we recognize that drift to come back to the protective presence of God. It's about remembering and responding accordingly. If we are ever, 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 ever going to have our longing for security satisfied, we need to practice repenting of the pride that promotes self-protection in our lives. And so here's, here's really the big idea that I, I hope is coming across this morning. It's this. When we practice the presence of God, our hearts are healed, they are helped, and they are held. And that is security. When we practice the presence of God, our hearts are healed. Those wounds that mark us, that we have received in God's presence, those wounds begin to heal. We are helped to recognize where we are prone to run after these false hopes and given the, the strength and the courage to run to God. And there, in that place, we are held in security. In the presence of God, we learn Security. And again, it, it's hard. It is a lifelong process. It's not like a one-time thing. Your quiet time tom tomorrow morning is not going to solve this for your rest of your life. It is a 
daily, moment by moment every day, process of finding ourselves attempting to practice the presence of God in our lives. But it is possible. And I just want to close this morning with a challenge to each of us. And that challenge is this. God intends each of us to be an extension of his safe presence to one another. These wounds that we carry, unless the trauma you experience was like a natural disaster, every trauma comes at the hands or the words of a person. And one of the ways, as followers of Jesus, that we bring the kingdom of God to earth, as Jesus talked about over and over and over again, is by partnering with the Spirit of God to experience our own healing work so that we too can be an extension of his safe presence to one another. And this is an all of us thing, but there are two groups that I think need to be most mindful about this, okay? The first group is men. And I'm gonna do my best not to blow a gasket on this. There is no group in human history that has done more to rob the world of safety than men. No group. And you might hear that and you might think, well, that just sounds like some kind of feminist, blah, blah, blah. It's not. It's irrefutable. No one, no group, has done more to rob the world of safety than men. And the chief evidence of that is that I would be shocked if there is a single woman in this room who has not been made to feel unsafe in the presence of a man. Not one. It's come to this point where I don't have one week go by that I don't have a conversation with some woman in our church that has had some experience of this. And, and here's, what, here's what's so unique about it, guys, that we have got to understand. If you have ever, let's say you're downtown Salt Lake City, okay? You're walking down Main Street on a Saturday night. And it's lit. I'm not even talking like a dark alley or anything like that. If a woman is on that street alone, walking down that road, and she sees a group of six or seven men coming toward her on the sidewalk, ladies, what are you going to feel? Well, based on how big your eyes just got, you're crossing to the other side of the road. Now, here's what I know. I would walk down Main Street any time of night and see a group of 15 women coming back from a bachelorette party, <laughs> guess what I feel? Nothing, other than I'm so glad I'm not a part of that. <laughs> we laugh about it, but that's a damning reality. And I find it immensely frustrating how much I have heard men criticize things like the Me Too movement or feminism and how little time and attention has been given to wonder why were those movements necessary in the first place? Because they were. I'm not saying everything about the Me Too movement and feminism is good and godly by any means. But they came from somewhere. 
There is no group that has done more to rob the world of safety than men. And I would argue that is an assault on the image of God. Because men, we play a unique, not, we are not exclusive in this by any means, but we play a unique role in imaging protection in this world. That just simply is. And because we have been the source of the most fear, we have a unique opportunity to be the source of the greatest healing in this area. We can be safe. And that happens by listening to the experience of women. Believing the things that they say. Adjusting accordingly as you learn things like anytime a woman encounters a stranger, a strange male alone, there is almost always some degree of anxiety about that. Know that. Steward that well. Maybe you cross the street once in a while rather than making her cross. Just be aware of what your presence causes other people to feel, women in particular. So men in particular, we have to be mindful of this. The second group is parents. Every human's first experience of safety and or danger has happened in the home. Which means we have massive responsibility as caregivers and parents. The way that our children learn to relate and to connect both with God and with others is informed by their experience of relating and connecting with us. Now, the good news is kids are resilient. You hear that all the time, don't you? People say that all the time. Kids are so resilient. But here's the thing. Resilient means that kids have an amazing ability to endure difficulty and to survive. That's resilient. But I would submit to you, if you are a parent or become one someday, if your sole goal for your children is their survival, your bar is a hair too low. There is a sea of difference between a child that survives and the one that learns to be a thriving adult in this world. And the latter should be our goal. So we need to be very careful about this kids are so resilient language. I saw this tweet the other day that cracked me up. It was a guy who was talking about his most recent therapy appointment. And he was talking to his therapist about something to do with his kids and she cut him off and said, it's, you know what, it's gonna be okay, kids are very resilient. And he responded to her going, you know what? People say that all the time. And if kids are so resilient, why is there like a line down the hallway of people getting ready to come in here and talk to you about their childhood? So parents, we can't be perfect. We're not going to be perfect. And in fact, our kids don't need us to be perfect. But what we can do and what we must do is we must do the work in our own lives to journey toward our own wholeness. You know what your kids need more than anything else? They need the healthiest version of you. They need the healthiest version of you. And in some way, in one way or another, whatever you don't process, you will pass on. Every wound you carry, 
every trauma you've experienced, the way those things have taught you to respond and to function, if you don't get a growing awareness of that, an understanding of that, and you don't begin that journey toward healing and wholeness, that will be passed on. Our goal should not be perfection because it's not going to happen. But we must have the courage and the strength to do the hard work to journey toward our own wholeness and to face our own stuff. We all have it. And we have to love our kids enough to face our own brokenness and to work with Jesus toward healing. So let's labor to be an extension of God's safe presence to one another because when we practice the presence of God, our hearts will be healed, we will be helped, and we will be held. And that is security. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you do love us and that you do seek to and long to meet this longing that you've put inside of us, that we would find our security, our refuge, our help in you, our healer and our shield, our strong tower. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would teach us what it looks like to run to your protective presence. Teach us to recognize where we are prone to run after false hopes for security. Teach us, Lord, to repent of the pride that promotes self-protection and help us, Lord, to be an extension of your safe presence to one another. And when we fail, which we will, Lord, I pray that as Solomon says and invites us to, that we would have the humility to say that we are sorry and that we will seek you to help us to do better. Lord, I pray for every man in this church. I pray for every parent in this church. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the courage and the strength to face the things inside of us that need to be faced, to submit them to you for healing. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live as the wholest version of ourselves that we can. And we cannot do that apart from you. Lord, make us a safe people to one another. And please make Ridgeline a safe place because you are a safe God. We love you and we need you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.